Hi, everyone. It's still Saturday, January 23rd. I received an email from someone this morning. I didn't read the whole email. I just read what, what, what I was able to see through my phone. It was someone, she was stating that she's black, she's 42, she trucks. We already know that. The world expects that. That's what everybody is saying, that black women of today are the reason or the fault of the downfall of the black community. So nobody's surprised about that. So instead, I decided to talk about an African-American woman that the world should most definitely be proud of. And there have been many of them, and this one is one of the past. I'm pretty sure many of you have heard her story. I'm going to read it, do your own research. There's a lot of information, many books written in the world. Every community should be proud of this woman. And it's quite fascinating. The story is because she was very clever and is Mary Ellen Pleasant. She's one of the first black self-made millionaires and she used an ingenious trick to build her fortune. Now, and this is her story. So listen, and it states, Mary, Mary Ellen Pleasant may not be a household name, but her story rivals that of any great American entrepreneur. In the 1800s, Pleasant became one of the first African-American female self-made millionaires in the U.S. despite the significant obstacles she faced as a black woman. Now, and when you read about black women of this time, of this area, it makes you feel that as a black woman of today, anything is possible. As any race of women of today or any person of the day, there are no boundaries. There are no limits. There are no blocks. It's only those that we put on our, in front of ourselves. Because at, 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 at that day and age, if people could succeed, at this day and age, there's no excuse like that. Pleasant employed her inherent savvy, building a mass, massive investment portfolio that reportedly was worth as much as $30 million at one time, a fortune that will make her close to a billionaire in today's value. Now, she put her fortune to use aiding an abolitionist causes across the country while helping slaves escape through the Underground Railroad and settle down in free states. Here's her story how she built her fortune. She was very clever. She was very, most definitely very business savvy. That's why her story most definitely appeals to me because she was an entrepreneur, most definitely finance focused. And I like the way that she, they talk about how she used her wealth. Now, as it relates to her lifestyle, she was considered one of the elitists, most definitely in that 1%. Now, listen to this. How she built her fortune. Born in 1814, some, biogra some biographers say she was born into slavery on a Georgia plantation, though she claimed to have been, been born free in Philadelphia. So the biographers say that she was born into slavery on a Georgia plantation. I'm from Georgia, but she claims she was born free in Philadelphia. Okay. Pleasant was separated from her parents at a young age and sent to work at a, as a domestic servant for a white family in Massachusetts, where slavery had essentially been illegal since the end of the 18th century. It was there that she learned to read and write and work in a shop, but she never had a formal education. I often wonder what I would have been with an education, Pleasant said in an autobiography published in 1902, 
I have let books alone and studied men and women a good deal. So she was wondering, reminiscing on what she would have, what would have become of her life, what she would have been if she would have had an education. But instead, she was a people watcher, I'm assuming, and she had studied men and women instead. I think you did more than well for yourself, but you know, without education, but imagine what a powerhouse she would have been with an education. Oh, you never know like that. Instead, Pleasant moved to San Francisco in 1852 during the gold rush. California entered the Union as a free non-slavery state in 1850. There she worked as a domestic servant and chef for wealthy businessmen. White wealthy men would have been dismissive of an African-American woman in their midst and Pleasant took advantage of that, according to the New York Times. Pleasant used her proximity and anonymity, was that correct? To pick up countless valuable investing tips by listening in on her employer's conversations. In fact, one historian posts the possibility that Pleasant wrote as a domestic servant specifically to pick up on investment advice and juicy gossip. So the word around town was that she would get these types of positions with people that were wealthy, businessmen specifically, so that she could be close to them. They were not paying her any attention because she was African-American, she was black, and she was able to listen in on the gossip and the investment advice that they would be speaking to one another. Okay. That's clever. It's quite possible that the job she had as a domestic were a cover that she was using because she clearly made her money from investments. Lynn Hudson, who wrote the 2003 biography, The Making of Mammy Pleasant, told the New York Times. So it was rumored that she was intentionally seeking those types of jobs with specific businessmen that would have tips that she could use as it relates to investment in creating her empire. That's a smart woman. That's a smart woman. As opposed to using color and what was born, born into to say, I can't do it. That's, that's a smart woman. Now, let's move on. A, a very admirable one. One that I will most definitely admire. Pleasant reportedly earned roughly $500 a month as a cook when she first arrived in San Francisco at the age of 38 and invested much of her salary and her savings in real estate and other opportunities she over heard, including gold and silver mines. So she put what she was picking up as gossip and investment tips to use. And with her $500 a month, she invested that and created her empire with it. She also bought various local businesses, starting with laundries, starting with laundries. By the 1860s, Pleasant was the owner of a prosperous chain of laundry businesses and a series of boarding houses where she still often disguised herself as a servant to be more easily overlooked. So she would use that disguise uh, as being the average African-American person so that she wouldn't bring attention to herself as she built her empire, even though she had already become the, a businesswoman. Okay. So she had a plan. Pleasant, almost, uh, Pleasant also met a bank clerk named Thomas Bell, who helped her pursue some of her investments as part of what would be a years-long business partnership 
forged in order to make both parties extremely wealthy. Okay. So she partnered up with someone that was a bank clerk and they both became wealthy, wealthy. So this person knew that she was African-American, of course, and that she had her own businesses and was using her business savvy to create her empire. And they partnered up with her. This is a white guy. He partnered up with her and they both became wealthy. Okay. But she was keeping a low profile still. Now. So, okay. So in order to avoid discrimination or simply questions about how a black woman could accumulate a substantial fortune, Pleasant reportedly put many of her investments in the name of Bell, who was white, according to the New York Times. So she put a lot of her fortune in his name because he was white, because it, if she would have put it in her name, that amount, it would have raised questions because at that time period, it was unusual for blacks a black person, a black woman, a black person to have acquired such a fortune. So she was covering her basis also is what they're actually stating. The two bought shares of laundries, dairies, restaurants, and even Wells Fargo Bank, which was founded in San Francisco in 1852. Some historians estimate their combined fortune eventually totaled more than 30 million, a sum that would be equal to roughly 864 million today based on inflation. As a wealthy African-American woman in the 1800s, Pleasant didn't exactly flaunt her wealth, but she didn't hide it either, it states. She built a 30-room mansion worth Roughly $100,000 at the time, or about $2.4 million today, in the heart of San Francisco in what is now the city's wealthy Lower Pacific Heights neighborhood. In her biography, the historian Lynn Hudson described the estate as lavishly furnished Victorian mansion with large grounds. Okay. Pleasant lived in the mansion alone with Belle and his family, though she also acquired various other properties through the end of the century, including a 985-acre ranch in the Sonoma Valley northeast of San Francisco, a property that is now a vineyard with a bed and breakfast. So she and Belle lived together along with his family, in one on, on one of the properties, but she owned other properties also. Okay. As a result, she faced animosity and vicious rumors that painted her as a as merely Belle's mistress and denigrated her boarding houses as brothels while claiming she practiced voodoo. So when people realized that she was wealthy, they started to demean her and say that she was Belle's mistress and that she practiced voodoo and called the boarding houses that she owned brothels. So when they realized that she was wealthy and because she was black, it couldn't have been because of anything positive. So they aligned it with her being associated to a white man and because it was easier to see her as negative. And so they took what she had created and, and created a negative undertone around it. Okay. Which would be understandable. Now that society would do that to her based on who, who society was at that time. You know, 
it is understandable and quite sad. And we have that. Let me get off that. We have that today also, because even with this channel, those of you have heard me read an email of someone that was what asked me, uh, how did I get my money, which I don't have a lot of insinuating that I must be doing something negative or illegal. And I said, well, jackass is because I'm a, I own three businesses. But they asked it in a negative way, as if they had never seen that they who that they only thought that people like them should have money. And if somebody like me had it, I had to be some doing something bad. Well, not really. Now, supporting the cause, it states throughout her life, pleasant supported, especially if those people that are asking that question haven't acquired or accumulated anything in their own life like that. Those are the ones that will usually ask those types of questions or come across someone that isn't like them, that they don't expect to have anything or anything near more than what they would have like that. They can't, they can't fathom it. You couldn't have did it legally. It can't be because you're you and I'm me and I don't have it. Like that's how the thought process now in this day and age is also I've run into it myself on, on YouTube. Throughout her life, pleasant supported causes aimed at, aimed at ending the practice of slavery while also working with the Underground Railroad to help slaves escape the freedom. Before landing in San Francisco, Pleasant was married to a wealthy mixed race merchant and abolitionist who reportedly left her an inheritance when he died. Pleasant married twice but had no children. During the 1840s, Pleasant used it to help transport slaves to freedom in northern states and Canada as part of the Underground Railroad. Once in San Francisco, Pleasant continued to offer financial assistance to former slaves, using the money her husband had left her, as well as her own growing fortune. So she was a capitalist also. Now, Pleasant often found jobs and housings for African-Americans who had escaped slavery via the Underground Railroad. As her fortune and standing in San Francisco, society continued to grow. Pleasant publicly took on issues of civil rights, including suing two streetcar companies for racial discrimination. Those cases paved the way for the desegregation of the city's streetcars while helping to earn Pleasant recognition as the mother of civil rights in California. Pleasant also put her money to use to help fund anti-slavery efforts. She admitted to sending $30,000, more than $850,000 in today's dollars to abolitionist John Brown to fund his 1859 raid on the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry in an attempt to kick off a large armed slave revolt in the southern U.S., according to historian Lynn Hudson's 2003 book. She died in poverty. While Pleasant's actions earned her local fame, a small park is still named after her in San Francisco. Her wealth did not last until the end of her life. After her investment partner, Bell, died in 1892, his widow sued Pleasant for control of their shared multi-million dollar fortune. So the white woman that Bell married ran off with all the money and was able to win it in court. So that wasn't a quite, that wasn't a very, very smart decision after all in the end here. But that was the only thing that she was able, was going to be able to do at that time. Pleasant lost that legal battle in large part because her finances were so closely tied to bells that it was difficult to prove that what was hers alone. It also didn't help Pleasant's case that her reputation had been tarnished by the accusations repeated in local newspapers and tabloids that she ran brothels and used voodoo to host sway over her deceased business partner, 
the past review notes. As a result, she lost most of her fortune and was evicted from the San Francisco mansion despite the fact that she owned, that she showed the court evidence proving she had designed the building and paid for its construction according to the Paris Review. So she learned her lesson afterwards about who you partner up with and who you could trust like that. So she learned a great lesson there. Now let's, let's look at this here also. And it talks about Madam CJ Walker. I've read a lot about her and a little bit of information that this person, and you all can do your own research. I'm pretty sure you all already know about it. Madam, Madam CJ Walker wasn't the first African-American millionaire at States. Every year during black history month, African-American pioneers and luminaries like Frederick Douglass, Jackie Robinson and Martin Luther King are celebrated with pride in African-American households and taught by teachers in classroom through, classrooms throughout the country. When it comes to noting the hysterical, historical achievements of blacks in business during the month of February and throughout the year, the most frequent name to come up is often Madam C.J. Walker, who is credited as the first black millionaire in the, in the U.S., Walker's life story is an incredible rash to riches tale. She went from poverty as a sharecropper in Louisiana, the unofficial capital of Dixie, when she was born there in 1867, to living in replete luxury in a New York City brownstone during adulthood. She was routinely spotted shopping on Fifth Avenue in 1916 after her business took off a rarity for most New Yorkers during that time, let alone African-Americans in the economic upheaval of the progressive era. For African-Americans well aware of how our ancestors struggled against segregation, poverty, and racial violence after emancipation, Walker's essays during a horrific era is a powerful aspirational symbol. Walker, however, was not the first black millionaire, a title which is often attributed to her. In fact, it was an earlier black millionaire named Annie Malone who gave Walker her start. In 1903, Annie Malone, the proprietor of the top black hair care product company in the country, gave Walker a job as a sales associate. After a year working for Malone, Walker started her own company marketing similar products. So she is, you all have to do your own research. She's stating that Walker is usually during Black History Month in February that she is usually credited as the first black millionaire, but she's not. It was actually a different African-American woman like that. So why has Walker been remembered this way? And who were the first black millionaires? This is the question. That, this is what she wrote. Okay. The actual first black millionaires lived during the antebellum and resurrection, reconstruction era. <laughs> it was a resurrection like that just before the Civil War. At times where black codes and free states and the Fugitive Slave Act made being high profile, wealthy and black dangerous. When Frederick Douglass, well, well, even, even with, you know, it was dangerous. And just like with Pleasant, because it was dangerous and if you want to do something, you had to, had to rely on white people, which could also be equally dangerous. Now, when Frederick Douglass's first book, Narratives of the Life of Frederick Douglass, became a hit in 18, 1845, he left the country for Ireland, partially out of fear that he would be recaptured and re-enslaved because of his notoriety. So the wealthy, the black millionaires at that time, they had to keep it hush-hush. Okay, 
But they state that Madam C.J. Walker, you would see her shopping. She would be out. She would be actually flaunting her wealth. The earliest known African-American to achieve a net worth of a million dollars was William Leisdorf. He lived free in New Orleans in the early 1840s, passing as a white man and working as a naval merchant. So the earliest known African-American that was a millionaire was William Leisdorf who was who who was passing as white so he was mixed race when he was outed as a black man he migrated to california california then a mexican territory populated with native americans and mixed race mexican nationals in california he acquired over 30,000 acres of land which turned out to be laden with gold just before the 1849 gold rush dang a few years later, Mary Ellen Pleasant, a free black woman, okay, we've already read about her from Massachusetts, also migrated to California. Pleasant got rich investing in silver and, and, and operating boarding houses for the rich bachelors of San Francisco. She used some of her money to help fund John Brown's famous raid on Harper's Ferry in 1857. When John Brown was captured, she went into hiding in fear for her life. Robert Reed Church, a former slave, typifies the risk encountered by early black industrialists. Church escaped slavery during the Civil War and opened a pool hall tavern and nightclub in Memphis just after the war ended in 1865. His business was the most prominent black business in Memphis, and during the Memphis race riots of 1866, a white mob targeted him for assassinations. And, and, and with being targeted for assassination, especially if it's based on wealth, you know, some of the white people that are of lower social class can act like damn roaches when they, it's like not, it, it, even now can't not stand to see a person that is other than white to have anything. And it has to be associated with something that illegal that they were doing to get it. If they have more than what they have. Like that is what it is. In July of 1866, late on the evening, as it had just started to rain, a dozen or so white men dressed in police uniforms shot church from the street outside his business and stormed the store, emptied the cash register and took a few ca casks of liquor. Casks of liquor. As they looted, church lay on the ground bleeding from the head. The men then set fire to the store and left church to die. Miraculously, church survived that night. He rebuilt his pool hall and expanded his real estate holders into an empire. So that made him stronger. So what doesn't kill you actually makes you stronger. Now, becoming the first known black millionaire in the South, he never forgot that fiery night in 1866. From then on, church uses money to assist African-Americans, giving financial support to Ida B. Wells and other anti-lynching activists. He lobbied the Republican Party to, to, to protect voting rights. He also did his best to stay out of the crosshairs of the good old boys and the KKK in Memphis. But just in case he couldn't, he kept his gun at his side at all times. It's always good to have your gun at your side, even in this day and age. That's why I'm surprised that most black African-Americans are against gun rights. There's still hostility, especially towards African-Americans that are up and coming or that have come up towards uh, from those that think that black people or African-Americans should be put in their place. 
as it relates to them aspiring and understand that they are not allowed to aspire or there's a limit on what they can aspire to. So it's always best to pack something legal beside you and have the legal route there. Carry it like that. As I write about it in my book, Black Fortunes, the mythology of Walker as the first black millionaire is largely a result of earlier millionaire industrialists like Bob Church, Mary Ellen Pleasant, and William Leisdorf being unassertive about their wealth and avoiding the spotlight as they faced an often violent racial backlash for their success. Okay, so these these were not, there's not a lot of attention of these this group of blacks being the first millionaires because this group of good bats kept a low profile because of what they dealt with as it relates to people knowing that they were successful like that. Walker was the opposite of modest. She summoned in a mansion in the Hudson Valley where she threw galas. She proudly placed stories in black newspapers about her high end lifestyle and publicized her donations to charity. Because of her celebrity and conspicuous consumption, Walker was eulogized as the first black millionaire after she died in 1919. A biography written by her great-great-granddaughter on her own ground, that's the name of the biography, states, many newspapers called her a millionaire, though in truth the value of her estate, her homes, factory, office, salons, apartments, buildings, real estate furnishings, cars, diamonds, and furs at the time of her death was probably closer to $600,000. So she wasn't a millionaire, but she had wealth. Is That was still $600,000 was a lot at that time. Hell, it's a lot now. But and she, she didn't hide it. She publicized it. She lived that lifestyle, you know, of what that wealth and that type of hard work and energy would afford one. And she bravely lived it, basically. According to my research, she was preceded by half a dozen African-American millionaires at least. Nonetheless, her status as a pioneer found its way into history books and became a source of racial pride for decades. Walker never wanted to be deemed the first black millionaire. In fact, I have been mistaken for a rich woman, which has caused scores of demands for my help, she once told Booker T. Washington in a letter. She inherited the legacy largely because of the racist backlashes her predecessors encountered, making it necessary for them to maintain a low profile, causing their extraordinary legacies and lives to be overlooked. Okay. Today we are witnessing another milestone, the first generation of black billionaires, which includes Oprah, Beyonce, Jay-Z, Robert Smith, and Michael Jordan, looking back on the lives of the first American millionaires like Mary Ellen Pleasant, who founded John Brown and the Underground Railroad, who funded them, and Bob Church, who helped fight lynching and back early black politicians. Today's black elite don't face that same obstacle that their predecessors did and owe them a debt for the path that they blaze. Hopefully today's black 1% will seize this opportunity and use their wealth to aid their communities, just as those who came before them. Have they used it? People that are in the black community can answer that like today. Have they used it? Have they used their wealth to help and aid in the black community in a way that it has made a difference? You know, now, let's look at the origins of Black Wall Street. 
Now, is Ottawa, W. Gurley, was a turn of the 20th century black educated entrepreneur and landowner who was born to former enslaved Africans. In 1889, after resigning from a position he held with the Grover Cleveland Presidential Administration, O.W. moved from his home state of Arkansas to Perry, Oklahoma, in order to participate in the Oklahoma land grab of 1889. With his wife, Emma, he later relocated to Tulsa to, see, to seize economic opportunities, resulting from the city's multiracial population boom. Once there, O.W. purchased a 40-acre tract of undeveloped land where he built a grocery store in a, on a dirt road that ran just north, that ran just north of the train tracks traversing the city. This is, I've heard a lot about this, or read a lot about it. This is the first, what I would call the first upper crust non-white community in the United States where you had upper crust African Americans living, growing, being able to receive from what this man created, who was also a capitalist and one of the greatest entrepreneurs ever alive in general in the United States period. Because of because of the era that this took place in. Now, O.W. later forged a partnership with fellow black businessman John the Baptist Stanford, a.k.a. J.B., with whom he shared a general distrust of white people. Both men chose to go by their initials instead of their first names. This action was a form of silent protest because men in the South were customarily addressed by their surnames, while boys were called by their first names. Sadly, black adult males were often addressed by their first names by white, by, by white men as a form of emasculation by using their initials, O.W. and J.B. circumvented this practice. So they went by their initials because in the South, it's customary to call a man by his last name, Mr. Such and Such. But white males and white people in general would call black American men by their first name to demasculate them. Okay. So they bypassed that by using their initials. So instead of calling them Mr. in their last name, a white person would call them their first name the way a white person would do a child or someone that isn't on the job. But they, the white people, were being called sir and madam by their last name. Now, O.W. and J.B. occasionally held divergent opinions. For example, while O.W. subscribed to the philosophies of African-American educator Booker T. Washington, J.B. favored the more radical views of civil rights activist W.E.B. Du Bois. Despite their differences, the pair were in lockstep to develop an all-black district in Tulsa. They subdivided the land into housing zones, retail lots, alleys, and streets, all of which were exclusively available to the other African-Americans who were fleeing lynchings and other racial horrors. So this, to me, showed that when you get two intelligent men together that put their head together and have good ideas and are business-oriented, finance-oriented, what they can create and manifest. 
The origin of Greenwood, the origin of Greenwood. After O.W. built several square two-story brick boarding houses near his grocery store, he called the street on which these structures sat Greenwood Avenue. After the Mississippi town from which many of his early residents hailed, before long, the entire area became known as Greenwood, which soon became the site for a school as well as an African Methodist Episcopal Church. But O.W.'s crowning project was the Gurley Hotel, whose high-quality rival that of the finest white hotels in the state. So what he was most proud of or what stood out as his greatest creation investment was a high quality hotel that was finer than or equal to those of the white high quality upscale hotels. That's why I stated that he created, it was Wall Street, so it was for the upper crust, elite blacks, African-Americans, as hundreds of African-Americans immigrated to Greenwood for the oil boom, O.W. and J.B. became increasingly wealthy, with O.W. boasting a reported net worth of $150,000. That's $3.6 million adjusted for inflation. O.W. leveraged this fortune to launch a black Masonic lodge and an employment agency while bankrolling efforts to resist black voter suppression in the state. So they created a, that's a real community. What this, that's a community. That's a community. What we have to, what, what African-Americans and black Americans have today in their calling community, that's a damn embarrassment. This is a community, but hell, who am I? Keep reading. Push back, but this is the type of com the com what y'all are calling community day is the community that they prefer you all to have. What this is, what is really a community, is the one that they don't prefer you to have. That's why they they don't like people like us and the officer Tatum and anybody else that would be that would be anybody else that has a different mindset that is money focused. That is about responsibility, that is about discipline, that is about creating something that is different, something that is out of the ordinary and unexpected like that. That's what they don't want you to hear. And a lot of black and African-Americans don't want it to be heard either. They want to fight for the right to have what they have now as a community. And that's what they have. We don't agree with it, but there's nothing we can do about it. Live and let live. Now, oh, pushback within the African-American community. O.W. was eventually appointed as a sheriff's deputy by the city of Tulsa, where he was responsible for policing the black population in Greenwood. But, but as O.W. became increasingly cozy with the white establishment, many members of Tulsa's black community began to resent him. In fact, in the Black Star newspaper, his militant black publisher, A.J. Smitherman, pejoratively referred to O.W. as the king of little Africa. So you had a black, a black militant that was a publisher that didn't like what was happening and tried to cast a dark shadow on it by calling O.W. the king of little Africa, when what he was actually doing there was quite positive. You know, what was wrong with it? 
Nevertheless, white developers begin to emulate OW and JB by purchasing plots of land located north of the railroad tracks, then selling plots back to members of the black community. By 1905, a black doctor and a black dentist had launched practices there. The creation of more schools, several hardware stores, and a Baptist church soon followed. Throughout this time, segregation was increasing as blacks converged to the north side of the train tracks while whites converged to the south side. Okay, it was, there was a segregation. When the Oklahoma Territory achieved statehood in 1907, segregationist Democrats, led by the white supremacist Bill Alfalfa Murray, passed laws that criminalized interracial marriage and prohibited blacks from obtaining white highways jobs. Okay. So the Dem so so the Democrats they were passing laws that that historically they've always passed and supported. Okay, so what else? So they passed laws that criminalized interracial marriage and prohibited blacks from obtaining highways jobs. These injustices affirmed O.W. and J.B.'s decision to establish a black-centric community where black men and women were shielded from racial hostilities. If white people made threatening, ra threateningly racist remarks, Greenwood's black residents often responded aggressively. For example, in 1909, J.B. was walking along Greenwood Avenue when a white delivery man uttered a racist insult prompting J.B. to throw the man to the ground, straddle him, and punch his face until it was bloody. J.B. was criminally charged for the beating, but was acquitted. On a separate occasion, J.B. was kicked off a train in Oklahoma for, sit for sitting in the first-class car, even though he purchased a first-class ticket. But he had to remember that the Democrats had made first-class laws that segregated him no matter how much money he had. So they reminded him of that by kicking him off the train with his first class ticket. OK, when he was asked to move to the back to the black only car, he refused to comply. He later filed a lawsuit in an effort to desegregate Tulsa's trains, but was unsuccessful. As segregation grew stronger, Greenwood's black business district thrived. So the, the, the Democrats did have a good idea about segregation, especially for this. So this is one of their ideas that was great that, at, but at that time in space, like here, and for this specific instance. So the, as segregation grew stronger, Greenwood's black business district thrived. So it turned out to be a win in this occasion. So Democrats, you all do have good ideas that sometimes are, are, are good. Now, let's move on. Mainly, it says, because residents fed their purchasing dollars back into the local economy while earning their incomes from white employers. So the district thrived because, because the segregation grew stronger, but the district thrived because the blacks that were there, they had white employers, but because of segregation, they had to spend their money in Greenwood. So the district, the community actually thrived. Now, while earning their incomes from white employers, this was possible because the migration of all men to Tulsa created a spike in demand for domestic help 
which enabled black residents to attain high-power labor jobs as maids, chauffeurs, gardeners, janitors, shoe shiners, and porters. These workers often earn enough money to send their children to universities like Columbia Law School, Arbolin College, the Hampton Institute, the Tuskegee Institute, Spelman College, and Atlanta University, which positioned them to secure white collar jobs after graduation. That's why I stated the, the community was for the upper crust, upper crust black elites. Because they made enough money to send their children to the universities. Greenwood's prosperity became legendary in black America with Booker T. Washington it, dubbing it Black Wall Street. Okay. So you all can read. I'm pretty sure you all know all about it, know the details about it. There's a lot of information, a lot of books written about it. Very interesting. You know, for me, most definitely because it's money and finance focused and it shows people that are most definitely to be proud of and looked up to by everybody of every race because it did because of what was obtained, what was brought into fruition when the odds were truly working against you like that. <laughs>